Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Coleman's Podcast. I'm Seamus Branagh, and in this episode, I'll be getting the thoughts of the Irish Independence rugby correspondent, Keen Tracy, on Leinster's win over Munster on Saturday. We'll also be discussing Andy Farrell's selection for the Irish Six Nations squad. Make sure to stay tuned till the end to hear from one of Irish rugby's top talents, Munster's Thomas Ahern. But first, let's hear what Keane has to say. First of all, uh, thanks a million for coming on to the Coleman's podcast, Keane. It's great to have you on. No worries. Thanks for having me, lads. No bother. Um, first, I'd just like to ask you about Munster-Leinster on Saturday. Um, obviously, big disappointment for Munster, but where do you think it went wrong for them? Yeah, it was. You're right. It was it was hugely disappointing from a monster point of view. Um, you kind of felt like that that it was one that got away. Really, um, you look at the progress they've made kind of this season, particularly in in terms of the game plan that they've been using. You look at how well they played in Claremont, and not many teams go to Claremont and they win. So, yeah, like th- this was really a big chance for Munster to get one over on Leinster because Leinster have really pulled away in the last few seasons uh, in terms of where it went wrong. Yeah, I think you'd have to look at like either side of half time. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but like these, you know, what they call championship minutes. Um, JJ Hanrahan misses a kick that hits the post. In fairness, it was a pretty long range. What was it, about 40 meters? Um, that hits the post. If that goes over, it's pretty much half time, and you're looking at Munster going into the break 13 3 in front. Now, instead, the, the ball comes back off the post, like I said. And in fairness to Leinster, they opted to keep the ball alive. And I think most teams would have probably put it out there and then, but that said a lot about, I think, the, the Leinster mindset. You know, they had full belief that they could work their way down to the other end of the pitch. And that's exactly what they did. I think Munster would be hugely disappointed. They they allowed them that entry. They conceded a couple of two, two really soft penalties. Reese Marshall slides in on Robbie Henshaw from the rebound off the post. And that gives Leinster entry into Munster's half. Um, and then having done that, I mean, Munster still should have been able to kind of see it out. But I think it was James Cronin concedes another soft penalty. And that gives Johnny Sexton then the chance to, to go into halftime 10-6. So that's really a six-point swing when you think about it, when Munster should have had three points up the other end. So 10-6, I don't think really reflected Munster's dominance because they played really well. And I know people will probably criticise, you know, the, the box kicking that they did again. But, like, to be fair, they were getting a lot of joy out of it. Like, you look at Conor Murray, he had a really good game and put Jordan Larmer under a lot of pressure. But then coming out in the second half, again, Munster started, they started okay. But JJ Hannerin misses another penalty. And the, the, the one he missed in the second half was really, really poor. If The one in the first half was long range, but you just can't miss those kind of kicks. Um in any in any game really but particularly in a tight game like Leinster and unfortunately this was a problem in the semi-final of the Pro 14 last season as well Hanrahan missed several kicks so it felt like a bit of deja vu but kind of to make matters worse then Munster's lineout was sloppy and you could see that Leinster grew in confidence and Munster kind of retreated into their shells and you know, I spoke about the Claremont game there a second ago and like you saw Munster kind of producing probably the best rugby that they've played under Johan van Grant since he's come in in the last few years. And they, like they had that really good strike play that got them back into the game when Mike Haley scored that like the training ground move. But we didn't see enough of that um, against Leinster. And I just felt like to beat Leinster, I think you need to do something different. You need to pose in questions. And I think Leinster were pretty prepared for what Munster threw at them. And then, you know, Leinster come up with the, 
the match-winning play, which was a set-piece move as well that Munster never even really looked like pulling off. And then, like to be fair, the, the Leinster try, I know Munster are pretty angry that the, the it came off a line-out that it, it just wasn't straight and it was a poor decision by the referee. Um, it should have been a scrum to Munster. But look, after that, it was, it was all about Leinster's brilliance. And to be fair... Like Larmer had a tough night under the high ball, but he was exceptional with the ball in hand. And it was it was a cracking try, to be honest. And probably just summed up the, the difference between where the two teams are at at the moment. So that's a bit of a long-winded answer for you. Um, just as you mentioned there about Munster's strike play against Claremont, um, I found a stat that 66% of Munster's tries have come off set pieces this year. But they just couldn't get the line out secure against Leinster. What did you make of the decision not to start Kevin O'Byrne, really the form hooker, and not even have him on the bench. You know, I thought that was quite a strange one myself, but where do you think the line-out went wrong for them? Yeah, you're right. I, I totally agree. I think it was um, it was a very strange call not to, to have Kevin O'Byrne in there. Kevin O'Byrne is someone who's kind of not really come from nowhere, would be kind of harsh to say, but, you know, he's really worked hard over the last year in his game. And he's actually been... He's been exceptionally good around the set piece. And also, I think he's become a really good link player between the forwards and the backs with Munster, which has been a, a big, big issue in the last few years. And again, it's something Leinster do very well. I suppose Reese Marshall did start that game in Claremont. And Reese Marshall is a very good hooker. Like, let's, 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 it's important to stress that as well. But yeah, where it went wrong, I mean, when the lineup goes wrong, it's never just down to the hooker. Uh, it's it's very easy to to blame the guy throwing in the ball, but like when you look at a lineout, there are so many moving parts. It's it falls on the person who's calling the lineout, which is Ty Byrne, and Ty Byrne has taken on that responsibility uh, for Munster this season, particularly since uh, Billy Holland hasn't really been in the first choice kind of European team, but. It's an important role, and it's it's something. It was actually I was actually writing about this in the Irish Independent to the, today that like the, the Irish lineout kind of across the board has been an issue. Leinster's lineout has been very poor this season, and Ireland's lineout was was awful last year as well. So that's part of the reason why Andy Farrell has called up um, Paul O'Connell to become forwards coach. So I think yeah, it's it wasn't all down to Reese Marshall, but there's no doubt he had a very tough day at the office. Um, like whether that was down to the calls being wrong, uh, whether that that was down to the timing of people lifting in the lineout. I'm not a lineout expert, but there was definitely more than just uh, the throw that was that was going wrong. And to be fair, Noel Scannell like settled it down a little bit in the second half when he came on. But you'd also have to say that James Ryan was exceptional. Um, he played well and I think when as a hooker if you're looking down the barrel of a, of a line out and you see someone like James Ryan who, who did kind of get into Leinster heads it becomes more difficult and it becomes a battle of wits almost and Leinster that was another key area that Leinster just came out on top of. You mentioned early on that answer there about um, Munster's link between forwards and backs what do you make of the new enough system really for Munster where they have this vertical stack of forwards one behind the other to give Murray that option maybe like to We've seen on the first play, Stander linked it to the backs and then only a few phases later in the exact same position, took it on. Does that give Munster a bit of variety that they've been missing? Yeah, 100% spot on. Uh, that's I think that's uh, something that Stephen Larkin has really pushed to, to bring in. Um, again, if you go back to Leinster, because like they are the standard bearers of Irish rugby, that's why they have, you know, the majority of Irish players are in their team. 
what they do very well is like no matter what number is on the players' backs, like they, they are very comfortable on the ball and their skill set is exceptional. Like I think Ty Furlong is probably the best example of someone like that. And he's almost changed the way that like particularly Irish rugby looks at their props and what they want from their props because like in times gone by your tight head all like all that was really wanted of him was you know to scrum down and hold your own you look at like someone like John Hayes who did it so well over the years but Furlong has probably kind of changed that kind of role in particular and, and the thing about it is Munster have the players and we, we've seen that throughout this season that, that are comfortable on the ball I mentioned Kevin O'Byrne he's one that particularly stands out to me and he, he's been an excellent link and you're right like the, the the vertical stacks that they're using is it's obviously very much in vogue and so much of rugby as you guys will probably know as well is is down to you know keeping up with current trends and what it does is it poses the defense like different sort of options and different pictures because Munster in the past have been, have been too guilty of going one out runners and like that's it's just so it's so easy to defend that particularly in the sense that like Leinster are very good at like timing and are choosing their moments when to go after certain breakdowns. And we saw that against um, Saracens did it to them really well in Champions Cup quarterfinal when they beat them last season. And what it just means is that you don't always go for the poach and the jackal turnover and the breakdown. And, and, and if you don't commit men to the breakdown, what you have is 15 players on their feet and that's probably why rugby hasn't maybe been as exciting to watch over the last couple of years. You look at the Springboks and how they won the World Cup. They do that exceptionally well as well. England do it very well because they're playing a similar model to what Saracens are playing. You look at them winning the Six Nations and the Autumn Nations Cup last year. So it's becoming more and more difficult to break down these sort of rigid defences who are coming hammering off the line. And when you've got 15 guys on it, it's very, very tough. So that's, that's why it's so important to, for the forwards and the backs to, to link. And, and not just that, it's like it, it's putting probing kicks in behind as well. And again, like I said, that was one of the big differences between Leinster and Munster on Saturdays where Leinster's attack is compared to Munster's that, you know, Ross Byrne comes on and he puts that like lovely, lovely kick in behind the onrushing Munster defence. And again, it just poses different questions. And I think that's where Munster need to get not being so reliant on the same kind of game plan. And when that game plan isn't working, they have to have something different to, to mix it up. And to me, it, it didn't really look like they did that um, on Saturday, even when, you know, someone like Craig Casey comes off the bench and he didn't even get that much time off the bench. And I thought Conor Murray played very well, but if you're bringing someone like Craig Casey on, he's a very different type of player to Conor Murray and he can speed up the game and he can change how you're looking to play. But unfortunately, that didn't really happen either. And he, he kept uh, box kicking as well. And to me, that looked like, you know, orders from the coaching box that he was to stick with the same game plan. So, yeah, frustrating for sure from a Munster point of view. Yeah, just as you were mentioning there about the kicking game, I think... Mike Haley and Shane Daly, especially for Munster, deserve a big shout in that one. Like Mike Haley found, I think, two or three touches just in behind. He did a lovely one in behind Ross Byrne and Shane Daly managing to get Munster right down into the Leinster 22 from his own 22. You know, what did you make of the battle between the back threes really in that kicking game? Yeah, like you're you're right again to, to pick that out. It was it was very interesting. Um, I thought Mike Haley had a good game. Um, he's he's someone who he came into Munster and he he had big boots to fill because he was like filling Simon Zebo's boots, and that's not an easy task at all considering how much of a kind of crowd favor Zebo was, the amount of tries he scored. But they're very different players, and I think 
he maybe suffered a bit in his first season that, you know, expectations were, you know, maybe a little bit too high. He got his Ireland cap um, in the build up to the warm up, the World Cup warm up games in 2019 and hadn't really kicked on at all in terms of an Irish sense. But yeah, he's had, he's had a really good season. He's been very solid. And like you said, he looked almost even better because he was so assured under high ball when you compare that to the struggles that Jordan Armour had. Now, to be fair, Hugo Keenan, I thought, was excellent for, for Leinster as well. And yeah, Shane Daly had a, had a really, really um, good game too. I think it kind of goes back to the previous question that you asked in terms of, you know, linking the forwards and the backs and actually just getting the backs more involved. Munster is still too guilty of not getting their backs involved. Like how many times did Keith Earls touch the ball um, on Saturday or even Shane Daly in attack? Like you said, I think you described it as the battle of the back trees, but much of that was kicking as opposed to, you know, Munster trying to use their back three. And again, that to me is a bit of an issue as well. And it's it's something that Stephen Larkham has been brought into to try and do, but they're still kind of fixated on this, you know, this kicking game. And while you're right, that they both put in a couple of exceptional kicks, you'd like to see a little bit more from them purely because you know that they have it in them. And, and if you can get your back three into the game more often, like again I go back to the Leinster try it's a perfect example of using your back three when Ross Byrne puts in that kick who's it for it's for Hugo Keenan who races onto it and his offload then is to Jordan Larmer and it's an exceptional try it's an exceptional offload I don't know that Hugo Keenan get enough credit for that piece of skill it was really really good and then Larmer's footwork obviously to finish so again that's Leinster using their the weapons that they have in their back three and I'd like to see Munster do use that a little bit more as well just a few of the players you mentioned there, Hugo Keenan, um, Jordan Larmer, Shane Daly, also Andrew Conway, all in the Ireland squad. Who do you think for the Six Nations is going to take that Irish 15 jersey, you know, trying to fill the boots of Rob Kearney that haven't really been filled this far? Yeah, it's been tricky, hasn't it? Um, Rob, Rob Kearney is, is a funny one because I think people have only, well, not everyone, but I think a lot of people have only realised how good he was since he's been gone and how important he's been and you know, you talk about Mike Haley coming in and filling Simon Zebo's shoes. Like whoever was going to come into Ireland was always going to have a tough, a tough task as well because they're they're all different players, and and that's important to remember as well. There's no like for like replacement for what Rob Rob Kearney brought to Ireland, but and like I mean, they've tried and tested a few a few different guys. Like the Ireland squad has just been announced today, and Jacob Stockdale isn't obviously isn't in it because he misses out through injury now. That's un, like unfortunate for many reasons. Um, it would have been very interesting to see if Andy Farrell would have stuck with Jacob Stockdale at full back because it's something that he clearly he clearly sees in him. Not everyone would agree. Like to me, he looks a little. He looks more comfortable on the left wing. But if if he believes that he obviously sees something in it, then there's no harm in you know pressing ahead with it. But obviously his hand is forced now. Um, and you'd imagine, well, it's going to be between uh, Hugo Keane and Shane Daly and Jordan Larmer, although I don't think Jordan Larmer did his chances of playing at fullback um, any good at all because he was so ropey under the high ball at Thoma Park. And it's not the first time either he's been kind of, you know, caught out under the high ball. So I, I think, like, like Jacob Stockdale, I think Larmer is more suited to the wing. I think Hugo Keenan is, to answer your question, is the obvious one. Um, he, he just doesn't make mistakes. He makes very few mistakes, really. Um, 
He's very confident. He's very assured. There's almost a bit of a Rob Kearney in him in that he might not be the flashiest player in the world, but what he does give you is solidity. And sometimes that's all you need um, at the back is someone, you know, to be a calming presence. I suppose we're lucky enough to be still going to the games at the moment. Um, and it's very strange because obviously there's no crowds there. So you can hear everything that's going on, which you'd never be able to do under normal circumstances with a crowd. And Hugo Keenan is one of the loudest players, I can tell you, on, on the pitch. Um, for a guy who's still only, what is he, 24, relatively still inexperienced, but obviously had a brilliant uh, breakthrough season last year. He's an exceptional communicator. And that's something that won't ever come across on TV when you're watching it, particularly when the fake crowd noise, unfortunately, is being drowned in. You can't get a sense of it at all. But he's a very, very good communicator. and That's what coaches like in him. So I'd be very surprised if he didn't start full back uh, for Ireland against Wales in two weeks. Just on the Ireland squad, what do you make of the omission again of John Cooney? You know, one of the foreign players in Europe for the last maybe 18 months and still isn't getting his shot for Ireland. Yeah, uh, it, it's a strange one. Um, like it, it's very hard to know. I, I, I think if you're judging John Cooney on face value, which is, which is all that any of us from the outside can do, then yeah, you would have thought he would have merited his place. Um, I, he probably hasn't been helped by the fact that um, Ulster lost both of their Champions Cup games and are now essentially out of Europe. So he hasn't maybe hit the heights that he did last season. But even last season when he was, he wasn't really getting a look in. My only logical explanation to that is there's probably more you know, going on behind the scenes that like, in terms of being picked for um, an Ireland squad or or any international squad, like a lot depends on your personality as well. And we don't get to see what, what that is like behind the scenes. And so you'd have to say like John Cooney didn't get a look in under Joe Schmidt either. And now he's not really getting a look in under Andy Farrell. So that's two different, you know, head coaches, international head coaches who don't really seem to fancy him. So you just don't know how a guy acts within a squad. Um, Does he fit in? Um, because like I said, that's that's really important as well, because going on rugby alone, yeah, John Cooney deserves to, to be in the squad. But you'd have to you have to guess, really, that there's there's more going on there than meets the eye. And then on the Irish back row, possibly one of the most competitive position groups in world rugby at the minute, really. Who do you think will be the starting back row for Ireland this year? Yes, I think this squad again was was quite interesting. I think um, it's great to see Reese Ruddock back in there. He's having a brilliant season. It's it's mental to think that he hasn't played for Ireland since the World Cup quarterfinal defeat to to New Zealand. Like he he was one of Ireland's best players at the World Cup in in twenty nineteen, and in a squad that wasn't like that underperformed drastically. Like he was one of the standout players. And, that, that, that kind of goes back to my fact, my point about like you never know what's going on behind the scenes because it, he looked like a strange omission um, throughout last year. So it's great to see him back. Uh, I think he's won uh, Player of the Month in Leinster for the last three consecutive months. And in a, in a team like Leinster, that's a pretty, pretty impressive feat. Um, he has his work cut out to, to get back into the team where there's no doubt about it, but he's definitely there, thereabouts. I wouldn't... I don't imagine there'd be a huge amount of change. Obviously, all of this is fitness permitting. I think Peter O'Mahony went off injured at the weekend with a potential injury, so we're not sure how they're going to they're going to be. But two weeks is like a long enough time to to recover. I wouldn't imagine there'd be a huge amount of change. 
um, between the back row that finished, we'll say, the season last year, which was CJ Stander at six, Peter Romani at seven, and Caelan Doris at eight. For me, I think Caelan Doris is like one of the first names on the Ireland team sheet, let alone in the Irish back row. So I think he, he's your first name down. And I wasn't a big fan of him playing at six um, when he kind of first broke in. And I, I understood the reasoning, uh, Andy Farrell's reasoning, that he was trying to get him into the team. But I think he's an out-and-out eight. I think he's by far Ireland's most skillful number eight. Um, I think his potential is absolutely huge. I think if he has a good Six Nations, I wouldn't be surprised to see him being a Lions bolter, to be honest with you. Um, exceptionally smart player. Um, I think Peter Romani's switch to seven has been interesting. He played, he finished the season really well, and he's someone who probably gets a lot of unfair criticism from, from certain supporters, but there's a reason why he's Munster captain. There's a reason why he invariably gets picked by the Ireland coaches because, you know, he does a lot of things that maybe to the untrained eye aren't appreciated. Now, he's not a natural open side and that, that to me, is going to be an issue against certain teams. I think particularly against England who will often play with almost two sevens in their back row, we'll say, with um, Tom Curry and Sam Underhill. I think it becomes, it can become a bit of an issue there, but Omani's exceptional on the ground. Uh, we've seen that as well, how good of a turnover trade he is. And I think CJ Stander is still to me, is still first choice. I know he's playing number eight for Munster, but I think he, he's, he's he's better suited to playing on the blind side, I think, than, than Doris is, because I think Doris gives you a little bit more at the base of the scrum. But you have then the likes of uh, Josh van der Feer and Will Connors, and their sort of individual battle has been fascinating to watch. And obviously, they're, they're proper out-and-out sevens. I think the issue for both of them, potentially, is that they're not they're not the heaviest, they're not the bulkiest against the bigger opposition like your France and like your England. And again, that's something O'Mahony gives you. It'll be interesting to see how Andy Farr looks at Ty Byrne as well. I mean, he's arguably the form player in the country right now, had another brilliant game against Leinster on Saturday. But there'll be a bit of sort of, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if he sees him fitting him into the into six at test level. He's not the He's not the heaviest or the bulkiest lock. And again, when you're playing certain opposition, I think that could could become a bit of an issue. And again, that's why someone like Quinn Rue, like sometimes people don't understand why Quinn Rue gets picked in an Irish team or on the bench or whatever. It's to give you that sort of the, the bulk that maybe someone like Ty Byrne doesn't have. But if you're going on form alone, I think he should be starting as well. In, in the second row, probably with James Ryan, but he's a good option for sure to have at six. And as you mentioned earlier, um, Andy Farrell bringing in Paul O'Connell into the Irish coaching team. What do you think now would be the situation with the Irish lineup? You know, who'll start hooker? Who can you see being the main jumpers? You know, it's been fairly poor the last you know, 18 months, two years, really. Yeah, it has. And I mentioned it earlier that I've written a piece in, in the paper about this that the line out across the board hasn't been great. It hasn't been great in the provinces, uh, it hasn't been great in Ireland. And you know, it, it, it's a problem that filters all the way up. Like, I mean, of, of course it does. It's stating the obvious. If you're picking players who are playing with their promises and the lineup isn't going well, naturally enough, it might be a different system in Ireland, but it, it's not going to go well there either. Yeah, I think Paul O'Connell is a very interesting appointment. I think it's fantastic for Irish rugby to have him back involved. I mean, you think of the intellect that that man has around, he's probably the best line-out operator that the country has ever produced him that doesn't automatically mean he's a great coach. So there, you know, he does have a bit of a point to prove. He's, he's still like quite inexperienced in terms of being a coach, but 
for last year's Six Nations, the week of the England game, he spent um, the week in Ireland camp. Um, and you'd imagine he was sort of maybe getting a feel for what things were like. But I know for a fact from speaking to the players that like they were like seriously impressed with like, you know, he wasn't even necessarily doing coaching. It was just having like these one on one chats, bits of advice here and there. And you can imagine what it's like for, I mean, if you were a young lock, like let's say like someone like James Ryan, who still is relatively young and James Ryan would have grown up idolizing Paul O'Connell. Like, that's no exaggeration to say. So when he sees someone like that coming in to basically coach him, like it's massive to have that sort of figure within the squad. So yeah, he's got his work cut out though. Um, in terms of like the Irish line out, yeah, Hooker has been probably the biggest problem position for, for Ireland since Andy Farr really took over, which obviously coincided with Rory Best retiring. And even towards the latter stages of Rory Best's career, wasn't quite all going swimmingly either. Um, I think Rob Herring is is the man in possession of of the the hooker jersey still. Personally, I'm I'm not convinced that he's the the answer going forward. Um, I think he's a solid thrower, and right now that's maybe what Ireland needs is just someone who can hit your man. Um, I'm not convinced by his physicality and what he gives you around the pitch. I don't think he offers enough at all. It probably goes back to my earlier point about like someone like Tyke Furlong redefining what a tight head does. I think a, a hooker needs to do much more than just be able to throw the ball in. And that's probably an indictment on like the rest of the Irish hookers because when Rory Best retired, it was a massive opening for someone to step up and make that jersey their own. You look at like someone like Niall Scannell, like, I really thought he was going to be the guy to do it. It hasn't quite happened for him. Reese Marshall is now actually... Irish qualified as well. He hasn't really got a look in. Um, the Connacht lineup has been pretty poor this season, but Dave Heffernan is a big lump of a man and Andy Farrell is a, is a big fan of what he gives you around the pitch. And then if you look at the Leinster situation, Ronan Kelleher, I, I still think Ronan Kelleher is potentially that man. Um, he's had a few struggles uh, with the lineup. there's no doubt. I actually thought he played quite well when he came on against Munster last weekend. Now, he obviously was the one who threw the line out, the dodgy line out in that shouldn't have been for the try. So things could have been very different if that were, didn't work out. But I still think he gives you much more around the pitch, but there's no way he can be picked at the moment on, on form because the form man is Rob Herring. And like I said, while I'm not convinced, it all depends how you're viewing this. I mean, are you just viewing it to, for Ireland to, to beat Wales in the Six Nations opener? Are you looking at the bigger picture, which... I think Irish rugby needs to have one eye at least on the bigger picture. Not be obsessed about the 2023 20, World Cup, but you have to have one eye on it. There's no use like winning, not that there's no use, but like if Ireland were to win a Grand Slam this year, but then get knocked out in the pool stages or a quarter final of the World Cup, like what are, what are we trying to do here is the question I'd ask. And I think someone like Ronan Keller and even there's a young guy in Leinster coming through, Dan Sheehan, who's is a really exciting prospect. Obviously, he's he's not in the Six Nations uh, shake-up at the moment, but he's probably one to watch as well. But in terms of the Wales game, I'd be surprised if Rob Herring didn't get the nod. He hasn't done a huge amount wrong not to be there. But I think going forward, uh, there's a bigger decision to be made. Thanks a million, Keane, for coming on and giving us some great analysis. Make sure to check out Keane's Twitter at KeaneTracy1. Next up, I'll be joined by one of Ireland Rugby's top prospects, the Monster Second Row, Tom Saharan. Hi, Tom. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, yeah. Thanks for the invite. Um, delighted to be on. First off, I'd just like to ask you about Peter O'Mahony's interview back in June. He 
You mentioned how over lockdown you developed into an international second row. So what were you doing, both nutrition-wise and training-wise, to aid in that development? Um, I, I kind of left. Uh, I kind of saw. I kind of saw lockdown with a bit of an, an opportunity. To be honest, like everybody, obviously, it's quite negative, but I saw it as a a good block of um, a good put on a good amount of kilos. And um, honestly, it was just trying to eat as much as possible. And often, I kind of had my both parents at home were uh, very helpful with that cooking me meals throughout the day and um, my cousin lent me um, he had a squat rack with a load of weights up at his house and the local J club gave me a load of weights as well so I was able to train away down in my um, down in my basement so it was it was an ideal to be honest because all I was doing was eating and um, and training throughout the day so I came back in quite a decent position and um to be honest, I'm looking to improve on that always, like, and I'm still looking to add a few kilos on to my current weight, like. So, uh, overall, though, it was a uh, was a good window for me, and I'm kind of glad it happened, to be honest. And just on that, with the training load, what's it like with um all the Monster Academy players, you know, playing with AIL clubs? How do you divide your time between you know training to province and training with Shannon yourself? Um, usually, um, obviously at the moment there's no club rugby, but uh, on the usual, if you were playing AIL at the weekend, you'd uh, you train with Munster Monday, Tuesday. We have our days off on a Wednesday, and then um, you club train on the Thursday night with your uh, club. You kind of do just little bits like cap and joints, just to get a kind of in with all the plays and stuff like that well for me especially be line outs and stuff like that and then uh, you play the game at the weekend so you don't have much time with the club but when you do it's valuable learning time just to get um, up to speed with all, all the stuff they're doing so in the monster dressing room you have some great leaders you know like Peter O'Mahony Conor Murray Keith Earls but I think particularly with yourself and Billy Holland every competitive minute you've played you know you've, you've had him with you in the second row What's that leadership like in the dressing room? Um, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable because, like the guys you mentioned there, like Pete and Murray, they've all like they've played line stores, which is unbelievable. Have players like that in the dressing room is is class, and obviously, uh, especially for me, Billy Holland's been a good role model for me and some to just uh, look up to and aspire to be. He's uh, a lot of years at the professional rugby like and he's honestly a top professional and every time I've got on the field I've been lucky to have him beside me like and it's uh, it's good to have someone like that with all that experience beside you it really helps you. Now going back to the very start of your rugby days what are some of your earliest memories playing with y'all? With y'all um, probably probably summer camps I, I spent in y'all I, I used to do the Monster Rugby summer camps um Every year, uh, oh, I did it for two or three years in Yale, and probably where I met a lot of friends and kind of gave me the spur on to actually join Yale Rugby Club. And uh, also, we on Easter, I think it was around Easter, we uh, I think I went to a couple of tours to Wales where we played a couple of Welsh clubs, and those trips are they're very good now, and uh, I got brilliant uh, fond memories from them. And then, what was it inspired your moves to you know move from Yale to Dungarvan initially, then to Walsh Park again? What was kind of the driving force behind them? Uh, for from Yale to Dungarvan, firstly was probably my secondary school. I was in the Saint Augustine's College in Dungarvan, and a lot of friends playing in Dungarvan, and it's it was just honestly it was just a lot more manageable, a lot easier to get to Dungarvan rugby training at opposed to Yale. And then the move from Dungarvan to Waterpark was kind of forced, as um or we didn't have enough numbers for. Under 18s, I think it was, and we folded. So I had to 
try to play rugby somewhere else and thankfully uh, Waterpark uh, took me in and uh, it was a brilliant move for me honestly because it was uh, such a good setup down there that they have and it's a very good club. Uh, just as you mentioned there um, about St Augustine's College, what was it like coming into the Monster Academy having not gone to one of those big schools as a lot of lads would have? Um, yeah, it was probably difficult already. It was definitely my first year in uh, in the academy was a bit of a bit of a wake up, like because uh, honestly, I've never had that kind of level of training before, where you're training four or five days a week and you're getting up at seven for gym sessions, and some days you have double gym sessions and you have pitch sessions on top of that. So it definitely definitely took me, I'd say, the full year to to get used to it and for my body to adapt because. I was got a, quite a lot of niggly injuries in my first year just because I wasn't used to the training at all. But uh kind of made me work a lot harder, to be honest, because some of the boys were kind of used to having some of it in kind of schools rugby, but it definitely made me work harder in them. Um, when was it that you made your move from full-back to second row? Obviously now it's like a mass part of your game, having that speed and handling that you had at full-back. But what was it inspired that move? Um. I I had no aspirations to do it now, but it was one of my uh, coaches at uh, just before my under eighteen club year. Uh, I kind of had an injury. I came back. I got a, a good growth sport over one summer, and I was I think it was six six maybe. And he suggested you should uh, have a go. It was uh, Noel Amara told me I should have a go at second row, and that he was going to be playing me second row for the summer and see how I went on with it. And took a took a good a good while to get used to it obviously different skill set like line out jumping uh, scrumming and stuff like that and thankfully I had very good coaches that summer that uh, helped my uh, transition a lot easier and how was you know the size that you are do you still keep that speed that we've seen when you burned Rufus McLean down the line against Scotland you know what is it how do you keep that speed up like when you're at such a big size um to be honest I've always been kind of I've uh, kind of athletics background when I was about uh 12, 13, I did a lot of running when I was younger and and um, both my parents were quite fit as well and always encouraged us to, to keep fitness up and stuff like that. But um, I've kind of always been naturally quick and uh, thankfully I've put, uh, put on my weight quite slowly and quite carefully because I don't want to put too much on and obviously, like you said, lose speed like that. So it's probably just putting on slow, gradual, good weight kind of helps you maintain your kind of physical attributes and um if you could pick one player past or present who was your biggest inspiration who would you say you really kind of model yourself off um obviously obviously past uh paul connell's obviously the is the obviously choice there because like he's probably gold second row like uh honestly and he's just someone everybody looks up to and everybody listens to and then uh present I kind of love watching the likes of like James Ryan's in Ireland but uh, abroad I love watching Mara Toje and Brody Ritalik I just love the way how they play the game and use their physicality and uh, their skills to show off in the games Thanks for that Tom Well that's all we have for this episode Once again I'd like to say a massive thank you to both Tom Saharan and Keen Tracy for coming on today's episode of the podcast Tune in to future episodes to hear us talk to Irish rugby legend and past pupil Mike Ross and expert immunologist and part-time rock star, Professor Luke O'Neill. Make sure to check out our Instagram and Twitter at Coleman's Podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everyone.
Thanks a lot, I sure am glad to be, to be where I can see so many friends of mine. How have I been doing? How have I been doing? If you really want to know the truth, I'm doing fine. Seventeen decisions in a row, and only five on points, the rest was all KO. Gibson and Johnson, Murphy and Bronson, one by one they come and one by one to dream and they go. How's it done? You ask me, how's it done? I gotta train a man who taught me all I know. Sure feels good to have him in my part. Hear his voice, how whisper low. Big boy, remember, big boy, remember. Stand up and fight until you hear the bell. Stand toe to toe, train blow for blow. Keep punch until you make your punches tell. Show that crowd what you know. Until you hear that bell, that final bell. Stand up and fight like hell.